This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. In the past few years, the United States government has issued fewer regulations and worked to eliminate or improve existing ones. Cass Sunstein led many of these changes as administrator for the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. In his new book, Simpler, The Future of Government, Sunstein talks about how a more streamlined government can improve health, lengthen lives, and save money. Wharton Operations and Information Management Professor Catherine Milkman recently spoke with Sunstein for Knowledge at Wharton about these changes and what the future holds. So first, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today about your fantastic new book, Simpler, The Future of Government. You report in Simpler that when the world-renowned behavioral economist Danny Kahneman unexpectedly called you on the phone in the mid-1990s, you awkwardly blurted out, you're my hero. And I have to say that I'm one of many young scholars who places you in the hero category. So it's an honor to have the chance to chat with you today about some of your latest work. Wow, thank you so much. Absolutely. I want to dive right into asking you a few questions about your book. In Simpler, you write about many initiatives you led while heading the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, or OIRA, that were designed to make people's lives better by simplifying the government. Which initiative are you the most proud of, and could you tell us a little bit about why? Well, uh, there are a few. Um, I think the regulatory look-back, which is an effort to go through all the rules on the books and to see which ones are um, are sensible and which ones are outmoded and which ones cost too much and which ones are too complicated uh, would probably be toward the top of the list because it's uh, structural rather than a one-shot. I guess the second thing that I immediately identify is there's a provision of the President's Executive Order 13563, uh, which uh, uh, asks agencies to consider and identify approaches that maintain freedom of choice and um, uh, reduce costs, and it specifically calls out disclosure of information, uh, warnings, and uh, appropriate default rules. Uh, um, uh, and the information disclosure is said to be, in the executive order, the president's executive order, supposed to be uh, salient to consumers. And I see that provision of the executive order as connected with a, a lot of work that uh, you and others have done that can really uh, help people without mandating or, or banning, banning anything. And that's also structural. So the look back has a structural feature and the uh, uh, um, liberty-promoting, uh, behaviorally informed approaches provision, as I see it, as a structural feature. Uh, in terms of uh, other things, the, the, the elimination of the uh, food pyramid and the substitution with the food plate is something that uh, I feel pretty good about uh, on the ground that there's reason to believe the pyramid was just too confusing and not helping people to make informed choices. Uh, the C- Consumer Bureau is something that I was one of a number of people who played a role in conceiving and uh, helping to you know, uh, uh, create the the, the basic orientation, and uh, the Consumer Bureau has as a mantra, no before you owe, 
and I think that's a, that's a pretty good mantra. Uh, generally, the, the office I was privileged to had you know, participated with, with many others in trying in multiple domains to figure out what can we do that will uh, help people maybe have uh, longer lives, better health, a uh, little more prosperity um, without um, uh, without hurting the economy at a tough time. And that general orientation, I think, was, was the right one, certainly in, a, in an economically very challenging time. And I just identify one more. This is uh, too long a list, but uh, much interested in automatic enrollment. Uh, I and a number of others were, and ways of getting people uh, um, benefits or permits without having to be um, overridden by uh, transaction costs. And there's one rule that uh, I'm especially pleased with, which gives uh, large numbers, actually hundreds of thousands of uh, poor children, uh, uh, breakfast and lunch, to which they're legally entitled, which they hadn't been getting because the um, enrollment process was cumbersome for them. And so what happened was we directly certified them because we knew they were in. And if uh, small children are uh, getting to eat when they're legally authorized to get to eat as a result of an initiative that takes away um, uh, costs and burdens, uh, that's something you feel good about. Those are wonderful examples. And, of course, Simpler is full of many more. So thank you for sharing those in particular. Speaking of regulatory look back, I wanted to ask you about whether there were any initiatives you led while at OIRA that you actually feel were failures, at least to some degree. And if so, could you describe one that was particularly memorable and what you learned from it? Well, uh, I, I, I like thinking, if you're in the executive office of the president, not as initiatives that I led, but as initiatives that I played a part in. So... Uh, one thing that was instructive to see in the federal government is that, uh, you know, the president's the leader and everyone else is part of a team. And so there were some things where in some formal sense maybe I had the lead, but uh, but there I had partners who were as important as I was or more important than I was. So uh, that's kind of how I, how I thought of the process and how it really works from the inside. Um, I'm pleased to say that I can't identify anything that was a failure. Um, uh, There are things that remain challenges, and one thing that I've been very focused on since leaving government, actually, is the the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, and especially the uh, applications for enrollment in the exchanges, uh, which is coming in the not-distant future. And there's a risk that if the applications are um, very difficult and confusing, then uh, the the exchanges won't work the way everyone hopes they will. And I know there's been a lot of uh, reasonable concern about undue complexity for people who aren't uh, used to dealing with long forms. And uh, just yesterday, actually, as we speak, the... Department of Health and Human Services announced a radically simplified form, and so they they met they met that challenge. And in the federal government, the, the the my own experience was there there weren't failures. There were um, things that uh, all of us would have liked to have seen a little faster, 
um, either something from Congress or something involving internal processes. Um, but when they don't happen from Congress, I think it's familiar why. There are partisan divisions. And when it doesn't happen within the executive branch with the uh, speed that the enthusiasts hope, uh, the, the reason is that a lot of smart people are working together to make sure that it's ready for prime time. So even when things didn't happen as quickly as I would have liked at the time, I can see in retrospect that it's a safeguard against error. Great. Um, so I want to dive in a little deeper to something you just mentioned or, or go a little further with it. You mentioned doing things with the new Health Care Act as a major challenge moving forward that you're working on. You also mentioned your in your book tax simplification as a major challenge that you hoped would be tackled in the future by Congress and OIRA. I was curious, besides making it easier for Americans to pay their taxes and working on this new health care act, where else do you see major opportunities for OIRA and legislators to make important changes using the principles of choice architecture and simplification? Well, there are a lot of them. Um, uh, I guess I think that uh, uh, obesity is a key challenge for the next generation. And... Uh, um, the First Lady is certainly keenly interested in this, and the, the private sector has uh, taken some initiatives with respect to school lunchrooms and cafeteria design to try to use choice architecture to uh, promote healthy eating. Um, uh, there's, there's a lot of thinking to be done about what the private sector should be doing, which may or may not be economically desirable for profit makers in the short term. That is, uh, tasty, high-calorie food often sells. So there's, there's private sector questions to be asked. I think uh, some of the most agile and public-spirited companies in the next years will be able to do well and do good with choice architecture. There's a lot of thinking to be done about public-private partnerships. Michelle Obama and others in the White House have worked closely with the private sector to try to think about what can, what can be done together to reduce calories, reduce salt. Uh, and there's there are questions to be asked on the regulatory front about um, nutritional labeling, calorie labeling. Uh, that rule remains to be finalized. Uh, what should that look like? What should its coverage be? What what really works and what doesn't? We don't have uh, complete information about that. Uh, I do think that uh, a big choice architecture challenge remains uh, smoking, mm-hmm. where we issued a graphic warnings rule that uh, uh, was intended to um, make sure people really uh, had a vivid sense of the risks associated with smoking. So if they want to smoke, the uh, law certainly lets them. Uh, that is in, uh, uh, it's been invalidated by a federal court, which I think was a mistake. Nonetheless, it happened. And so the FDA has to uh, rethink what it's going to do in terms of uh, tobacco warnings. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people die every year from smoking, and that's a uh, significant choice architecture. Uh, challenge. Uh, it's not technically a health care implementation challenge, though, of course, it has a health health uh, dimension uh, front and center. Uh, distracted driving uh, is uh, currently uh, a problem. 
and it's going to be a challenge, no question, for the next uh, uh, next generation because when that little red light goes on, System 1 in the head often says, oh, uh, I should probably attend to that, even if I'm supposed to be attending to the road. So uh, figure out what we, should, what we can do to save some lives there would be, like a, I think, a pretty good idea. Um, uh, th- there's a lot to be done in terms of testing empirically what works and what doesn't. Uh, we made a, a good start, but the uh, let's make up a word in this conversation. The empiricization of uh, federal government action uh, is a continuing project, and, um, and and there isn't anything more important. So I'd say this is a structural point to have randomized controlled trials being uh, uh, conducted by the government and used by the government more uh, uh, pervasively than has been done to date would be a very good development would help help orient a lot of efforts going forward. I do think that uh, there are some empirical challenges that um, are a little technical but are very important to meet, one of which is uh, to get very clear on the health risks associated with particulate matter. Uh, This isn't, strictly speaking, uh, uh, behavioral, but it is empirical, and it's a scientific question. And since the health benefits, as we understand them, of particulate matter actually account for a very large percentage of the total uh, monetized benefits of federal regulatory activity in the last five or ten years, and because scientists uh, continue to uh, debate uh, exactly what um, the health risks are of particulate matter and whether the risks are variable across uh different kinds of particular matter, it would be really very good to get clear on that. That's great. That's a great list of challenges moving forward. So on that note, I've noticed, and, and I'm sure you're very well aware of the fact that a number of countries outside of the U.S. are beginning to build choice architecture departments into their governments, meaning departments that specialize in simplifying complexity and helping people make better decisions without restricting their freedom to choose. You and Dick Thaler have referred to techniques that guide choices in wise directions without restricting individual freedoms as nudges, and the UK now has a so-called nudge unit. The Australian government is getting involved in the movement as well. Do you see a need for such a group in the U.S. federal government or in state governments? And if so, what do you think such a group or groups should look like? Um, I do think the the UK uh, behavioral insights team uh, is doing terrific work. And I've actually worked quite closely with them about uh, overlapping interests. And I was there not long ago and, and talked to them at length about uh, what, what might be done going forward. Uh, um, I wouldn't say there's a need for uh, such a unit in the United States. I, I think there is uh, great value in bringing to bear a... a uh, behavioral insights and be empirical tests into government. So the approach that we took in the first term of the Obama administration was not to have a separate team, but to have a number of people who were uh, alert to the um, uh, potential value of uh, low-cost, freedom-preserving tools 
Uh, so, you know, the president's very clear. He's uh, supportive of automatic enrollment and savings plans. Um, uh, there's a large catalog that the book goes over of things that uh, people in the Obama administration were interested in, and a lot of them had bipartisan support. So not clear there's a need for a dedicated unit. There is a need for the uh, problem-solving tools, and there's a need for an emphasis on, on the empirical. Um, uh, whether a dedicated behavioral unit is a good idea, I think it's hard, hard, hard to say in the abstract. Maybe that you've got the... Uh, the, what it would give you already in the DNA of a government. Uh, on the other hand, uh, in the UK, it's been terrifically uh, helpful, and it wouldn't be at all surprising if a state, you know, uh, name name your favorite state, um, Pennsylvania, uh, found it very useful to, to have uh, you know a small team that was focused on this, and it wouldn't be. Um, you know, it might well be useful for the United States to have that too as, as a government. Um, but I think what's most important is the problem solving capacity and not necessarily a dedicated unit. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for sharing those thoughts. I want to wrap up. I'm hearing that we're running short on time by asking you one last very short question. So you report in Simpler that when asked on a first date by your now wife, Samantha Power, about your dream job, you responded, Oira. Now that you've had that job, I want to pose the same question to you again. If you could have any job in the world now other than law professor, what would be next? Economics professor. <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> I think that's a good place to stop this interview. <laughs> that's perfect. Great. That's the answer. Great. Honest answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I know you're extremely Great. busy, but this was Great. this is fantastic. Yeah, pleasure. Hope to meet you soon, okay. I hope. I hope to meet you soon as well. <laughs> okay, great. Thanks a lot. Thanks for your time. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.